Okay, if you want to put your, uh, your thumb maybe in Romans chapter 11 and then Ephesians chapter 2. Romans 11 and Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> you know, it, it really cracks me up to think back a year ago. Um, to, to where a year and a half ago to, to what life was like for Laura and I um, we were knee deep in a student ministry and hold on a second they're going to get you some lights out there you're like whoa um, so, so we're knee deep in a student ministry um, we're, working real hard to give people a vision for the glory of God and a mission that, that's worth them living for and so, so we're working really hard in that when all of a sudden God starts to do some really unexpected things now for a long time I would have said that I, I knew that God was leading uh, me toward um, pastoring slash planting a church and so but I had no idea how that was going to get off the ground and it's amazing looking back how what you could plan for for literally years of your life God does in the matter of just moments you know and so um, in the middle of just trying to figure out what does this look like and, and what what does the next few years hold for us I'm having lunch with my pastor and, and another pa- local pastor here in town um, or in Mansfield, and, and, and he makes this comment. He says, have you thought about planting a church in Midlothian? And like, I, it, it would take a lot to kind of unpack what, what a big statement and just a God moment that was. That was a really surreal second of, like, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the punchline, you know? <laughs> Are you serious? And so my, my response was, yes, I've thought about planting. Now, where's Midlothian exactly, right? And so... <laughs> And so, uh, so, so we jump in. We literally have one month to make a decision. We have the month of April 2009 to, to make a decision. Are we in for this, out for the, like, what, what are we doing? And so we just start making trips down, Laura and I, um, and, and not a whole lot of people knew about it at this point. So we're, we're just making trips down and we're asking God to give us a vision and a burden for this place. And if he, if he does that, then we're in. If he doesn't, then, then we'll, we'll pull back on it. And so he, he ended up giving us a burden and we feel like a vision for, for this area of the world and of the Metroplex, and um, so, so we jump in, and then we start praying that God would bring people toward it, and, and that God would start to work this in the hearts of people, that he would give people a burden and a vision for this area. And I'll never forget this, this one moment, I was reminiscing about it this week, that um, I, I popped in, I knew three people in Midlothian that lived here, so I popped in on one of them randomly, like we called on the way and, and like we knew each other, but we didn't like know each other. We'd never sit down for 30 minutes and had a conversation. So we pop in and we basically throw out the idea, hey, we're thinking about planting a church. What do you think? I'm thinking we're about to get rejected. I mean, that, that's what I'm thinking in the back of my mind. And um, I'll never forget this moment on the back of their, like the little back porch area. Um, he, he looked at me and said, you're not going to believe this, but three months ago, a guy that I really respect, a pastor that, that I've just grown close with, that, that really has a voice into my life, um, said, you are about to be a part of something new and you need to get your life ready to get behind it. And he said, you know, for three months, I've been trying to figure out what that is. And it just really seems to align with what you're talking about. And we're in. You, you do it, we're in. And so, like, I remember driving back that night thinking, what just happened, you know? Like, I, I don't even know how to explain that. And then the other thought was, we just doubled our church attendance right there, right? <laughs> we just went from one to two families. And, and so God starts to work. I, now, now, that was one of those that were kind of out on the surface, but I think there was a thousand of those stories behind the scenes where God is orchestrating. And I could literally tell a lot of stories about how people have come into this, that, that the only response to why they're here is because God has orchestrated it. I got, God has moved in that sort of a way to make those things possible. And, okay, now, now here is my tendency. 
Um, oh, well, by, by the way, we planted a year ago today. This, this was our first Sunday a year ago. And so what you see here is 52 weeks in the making. Like when you look across this room, and more importantly, when you hear the stories of the people across this room, that's God on the move over a year. Okay, now, now here is my tendency, and I, I'm going to admit that this is a sinful tendency in me, is to under-celebrate. And, and so, like, I think it's worth just taking a second and saying that you should, like, if you've planted your life here, you should be celebrating what God is doing here. I mean, God has really done some extraordinary things. And I'm not talking width in here. Like, I'm talking more in terms of depth in this place. God has really done some extraordinary things in 52 weeks, 365 days. Um, so, so God has been on the move here. Okay, now I want to jump to the other side of this equation and, and bring in kind of this, this perspective. And, and just acknowledge this, that, that as much as God has done for us, we are in a very dangerous position as a church. Now, okay, that would apply to any church that's one year old. Okay, so if, if you want to think what, what a church looks like that's one year old, think in terms of a one-year-old baby, right? So a one-year-old baby is still drooling all over the place, right? I mean, they can't really eat very well yet. I mean, they still in, they're in diapers. They're learning to crawl. They, they can't walk. I mean, that, that's us right now. When you think Stonegate, think one-year-old baby. So that's any church plant that's a, that's a year old. And so it's just the nature of being super young that you're super fragile. Okay, now add on to that um, rapid growth. And you, you can get almost instantly a dangerous situation. Now, now don't hear, when I say this, this is the risky part in this. I think you could say, well, does he not want us to grow? No, I want us to grow, right? This is a good thing. I'm just saying this and acknowledging the fact that there are some dangers that come along with this. Um, so, so most church growth people will tell you that about 20% a year is what is kind of a healthy, manageable um, growth rate. Like if you think of a one-year-old baby and, and their head overnight instantly quadrupled in size, they've got a problem, right? Okay, so, so most, most people would tell you about 20% a year is, is what would be manageable. More than that starts to put tension on a little baby or on a little church, right? And, and so um, this is our 52-week growth rate. 1,000% in 52 weeks, you know? Okay, yeah, and that's great. I mean, that's, I mean, God is doing some good stuff around that. But I, like, I want to acknowledge, this is going to kind of take us into where we're going today, that there are some dangers associated with that. Okay, now, now let me give you imagery to kind of articulate the danger in this. If you can imagine a little baby laying in the floor of a room, I mean, he's healthy, well-fed, ready to go. He's developing. All that's looking great, right? And then all of a sudden, 20 mamas bust through that door and want to be his dad, or want to be his mom. Not dad. That would be really awkward. (laughs) They bust through 20 of them and say, okay, I'm here to parent. Let's do this. And so now imagine what happens when, when 20 ladies all grab for the baby, right? And so you get one, you know, one mom has a hold of his nose, another one's got his ear, another one's got a foot, an elbow, an arm, a finger, and rather than pulling in one unified direction, they're all pulling in different directions, with different preferences, with different priorities, all with their own agenda on how they should parent, all with their own preferences into how this thing should play out. Imagine what happens to a one-year-old little baby in the middle of that. Now imagine what happens to a church when people run in and grab their piece of it, right? And we need more of you to grab a piece of it. We need more of you to do that. And so imagine what happens when you run in and grab a piece, but rather than pulling in one direction, we're pulling in 15 directions. 
30 directions. What happens when your preferences start to rule and you start to go that way when we're going this way? And you start to pull this way when everybody else is going against you. I mean, just imagine what happens. A, a, a church can't handle that when you're one year old. Okay, now, now here's, this is what kind of takes us into where I want to go this morning. I, I want on our one year anniversary to spend a morning to just recalibrate us. And this is proactive. This is not reactive. This is not, oh, this is happening, so we need to have this talk. It's not that. This is proactive recalibration around what God has called us to be and do here. And so this is a morning for us just to be able to stand back and acknowledge this is the mission of God for this place. And preferences can't get in front of that. Our agendas can't get in front of that. That we've got to die to all of those things so the gospel can win. Okay, so we want to take a morning to recalibrate around that. Okay, so this is how we articulate the mission of Stonegate. Okay, so this is our statement for it. You, you could have a little bit of a different kind of articulating this thing, but, but this is the idea of what God has made the church for, why we exist. Here's how we say it. We say it like this, extending, like we exist to extend the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel. So, so this is why we're here. This is why we planted in Midlothian. This is why God placed this church here in this community. The glory of God, lives change the gospel. This is our priority. All preferences align under this. And this is like the never-changing mission of God. Now, you're not going to flip to like Philippians 4 and see extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel. You're not going to see that phrase in there. But if you step out of Philippians chapter 4 and you look at the Bible as a whole as telling one story of God redeeming people to himself, restoring what's broken in them. If you look at the whole Bible as telling that story, then you see that phrase on every page of scripture. So this is the never-changing mission of God. This is what God is up to. This isn't something that we just kind of made up. This is something that God has entrusted to us and is saying, this is what you're about. Do this. Keep this central. When we're 80 years old, sipping coffee, talking about how great life was in 2010, this will still be the never-changing mission of God for the world. Okay, so with that said, I'm going to take it in, in three um, statements here, and we're just going to kind of work through this statement and give the biblical rationale and basis for this so we can all agree that this is going to be primary for this place. Nothing's going to take its place here. Okay, so number one, first phrase, extending the glory of God. This is our first priority. We want to extend the glory of God. This is what sits on top of everything. Okay, so if you go to Romans chapter 11... Um, when, when you start prying through the book of Romans, here's what you're going to find. In Romans 1, verse 16, Paul sets the theme of the book. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, so this is a theme of the book. Then Romans 1 through 3, Paul starts to give and articulate the, the hopeless condition of you and I. He starts to show us that apart from God, we are in deep trouble. Apart from God, we are in a hopeless situation. Okay, so, so he's going to talk about the fact that we're glory thieves. That, that rather than reflecting the glory of God, we reach for the glory of God. Rather than living under God, we want to be God. This is the essence of what sin is. Rather than, than submitting and living under the reign and rule of God, we try to set up our own kingdom and do our own thing. 
So this is where in Romans 3.23 it says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But don't forget what comes after that, right? Everybody has that verse memorized, or a lot of people do, and they don't memorize the good part that comes after it. Verse 24, and we're justified by his grace as a gift. The end of Romans chapter 3 gives the gospel in about five verses. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. This is the gospel. So he gives us these great gospel truths here. He's telling us that, yeah, you're hopeless, but God, through Jesus, justifies. That's a legal term, right? So so it's got a courtroom type of analogy that before God, Jesus makes us legally right before him. And then it uses this word redemption at the end of chapter 3. And that's a marketplace term where, where Jesus, God, through Jesus, purchases us from slavery, purchases from the dominion of sin, and frees us to a life with him. And then it uses this word propitiation. You probably don't use that one every day, huh? That's not exactly normal vocabulary. Probably didn't use that one with your wife yesterday. And so that's a ceremonial type of a word that's got this idea of God through Jesus pours out his wrath, not on us, but on him. That on the cross, God treats us, or God treats Jesus like he was us. And because of the cross, God now treats us like we are Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? This is the end of Romans chapter 3. Romans 4 and 5 give us this idea of this is faith. This is what faith is. This is what it looks like. Here's Abraham. Look at this model. 6, 7, and 8 give us an idea of this is how you walk in Christ's likeness. And then when you get to chapter 9... Um, and you might think of, of Romans as the Mount Everest in the Bible. Like this is, this is a massive monument going on here in the Bible. And when you, um, when you get to chapter nine, you leave base camp and you get above the tree line. Like this is the high altitude section of Romans right here. And so when you start reading this, you're going to start reading about the sovereignty of God over all of us, over our salvation. I mean, there's going to be some things in there that make us a little bit uncomfortable and should humble us. That's what it should do in us. And then by the time you get to the end of Romans chapter 11, um, at, the, at the top of verse 33, if you've got an NIV, it's going to call it doxology. Doxology means glory statement. At the end of chapter 11, Paul is just uh, unpacked. This is what God is. This is what he looks like. This is what he does. This is the gospel. And at the end of that, he's so overwhelmed, he breaks into poetry. And he gives this glory statement of a response of what God is and the gospel has done to him. So in verse 33, this is the glory statement. This is what Paul says. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is his response to this. This is his glory statement to this. And he starts out by saying, oh, the depths of God's wisdom. Like the riches of his knowledge. And listen, we say this all the time around here, but the most important thought you will ever think is the one that immediately follows the word God. That's it. That determines everything about your life. That thought that you thought when I said God, that determines everything about it. And when Paul thinks God, he has huge, biblical, bold, beautiful thoughts about who God is. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Here's what Paul's saying. That you can live in the mind of God forever without worrying about exhausting the wonder and the awe that you'll find there. That every time you get to the top of one peak of truth, you look over that and you see the endless array of peaks in the distance. 
And you realize that you're still in the foothills of the mind of God. This is what Paul's saying, that the depths of his wisdom and his riches and his knowledge are unsearchable. He uses the word unsearchable. And it doesn't mean that you can't search them. It doesn't mean that you can't know some of them. It means that you don't have enough time in eternity to get to the bottom of them. That they're unsearchable. And then he uses this word inscrutable. That when you think of God, his ways, his judgments, that they are beyond tracing out. Have you ever had that moment when you've looked up at the sky like a clear night and you see all of these stars? You've got the moon over here. You've got all of these things when you look up. Um, and, And here's what Paul is saying. Like that, you can see a lot about God, but you have no idea what you cannot see behind it. You have no idea of the galaxies and the universes behind it. That it's too much for us. Okay, then he goes on. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Okay, now guys, I want to help you out here. It took me like three years of marriage to learn this. Um, this is a rhetorical question, right? And so um, guys, when, when your wife, when you throw your, your clothes down on the floor, right? Right in the middle of the floor. And your wife says, hey, is that where those go? She's not asking for a response, She's not asking a question, right? She's not asking for a six-page lecture on why you've moved your closet and your dirty clothes bin in the middle of the floor. She's not asking for those things. It's a rhetorical question. She is making a statement. She is saying, I am not your mom. I'm your wife. Pick it up. That's what she's saying, right? And all the wives said amen. Yeah, right? And so, so it's a rhetorical question. That's what Paul's doing here. He is saying, who has known the mind? No one has. It's impossible. You can't do it. And he's going to say, who has been his counselor? He's making a statement that no one has. Only a fool tries to put God in the position of a counselee. As if he just needs to know a little bit more to, to get this thing working right. As he, he just needs to be a little more educated, a little more in tune with reality, right? Only a fool does that. Paul is saying that God is the counselor, not us. Okay, then he goes on and says this, verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul's saying it's impossible to bribe God. Everything you could give him is already his anyway. It's impossible to put God in your debt. So, so the things that you do, do not put God in debt to you. The, the only thing that God is indebted to give us is justice. And we would much rather Jesus take that for us, right? So so we cannot bribe God. Okay, now the last verse here, verse 36. For from him, that God is the source of all things. The source, all these things flow from him. And then look at the next phrase. And through him, that God is the sustainer of all of these things. And, And then next phrase. And to him, that there will be a day where every person on the planet one day falls before the the feet of Jesus. And it will either be now in joy or then in terror. But all things are going to him. Okay, now look at these um, five words. To him be the glory forever. And then amen, I agree. To him be the glory forever. So Paul gives with these last five words, he kind of pulls up the shades and gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. To him be the glory forever. So so here's what Paul is saying. God is all about the glory of God. 
This is what God is about. This is what God is doing. This is the mission of God for the world. God is all about the glory of God. When you think about this question, what motivates God? What moves God? The answer is the glory of God. That's what motivates him. And so here, and here's the problem with this. I I think for most of us, when we open up the Bible and we start reading, we are at the center of the Bible. We are not at the center of the Bible. Our preferences, our health, our, all, we are not there. God is at the center of the Bible. This is where everything revolves around. What motivates the heart of God, the reason God does what he does, the reason he shows mercy there, restrains it here, gives salvation there, restrains it here. The reason God does everything he does is for his glory. This is why he does it. And when we say for his glory, what we mean by that is to put himself on public display, to show himself, to exalt himself, to raise himself up above this world's eyesight so people can see his wisdom, his his goodness, his mercy, his grace, so people can see him. This is what God is about. This is what motivates God. This is why God does what he does. This is God. So if you want to know the reason... That God does whatever it is that you're questioning. The answer is the glory of God. To him be the glory forever. That's the reason. Okay, now the context of Romans 11 is salvation. That the reason God saves some of these Jews, some of these, the reason God is up to these things is for his glory. So if you want to talk about the primary way at the top of the list sense of why God does what he does, the answer is for his glory. Now, I don't want you to take that, like, I, I don't want you to believe me in that. I want to give you the framework of the Bible, and I'm going to read off 15 or 20 passages here that just show that this is the heartbeat of God. This is what God is doing and why he's doing it. Okay, so, so just follow along here. You can look up at the screen. And if you want these verses, email me. I'll shoot them to you. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. God is central to God. Listen to what it says here. For my name's sake, for the glory of my name, for the splendor of my name, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, for my glory, I restrain it for, for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, listen to this, my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 43, man was created for the glory of God. I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. You want to know why you exist? You want to know at the deepest level what your heart wants and why it was created was to glorify God, was to orbit around God, was to love and live for and display God. That's why you exist. Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 3, God called Israel, his people in the Old Testament for his glory. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The reason he rescued the people of Israel from Egypt, Psalms 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 8, yet he saved them. Why? For his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. 
Why, okay, why God raised up Pharaoh, this, this um, ruler in Egypt, Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. Why did God destroy Pharaoh? Exodus 14, 4 and 18. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And the, Egypt- and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Why God spared Israel in the wilderness for his glory, Ezekiel twenty fourteen says. Um, why God gave Israel victory in the promised land? Like why he drove out all these people in the promised land before the people of Israel? This is the reason. Second Samuel 7.23 And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing, uh, doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its God. God pushed out all of these people for his name's sake. Why did God save Jerusalem from attack? 2 Kings 19 tells us for his own name's sake, he did that. Why did God restore Israel from exile, bring them back from exile? Ezekiel 36 tells us this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. He brought them back from slavery for the sake of his name. Why does God provide for his people? Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. The mission of Jesus was all about the glory of God. John 7, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is all about the glory of God. Ephesians 1, God chooses, predestines, adopts all of those words. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, for his glorious grace. Look at what it says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestines us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. And look at the reason why. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise, look at this, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he does it. If you're saved, here's why. It's because of God's glory that you're saved. It's because it lifts God God up and shows a picture, displays a picture of God to the world. Why do we do good works as a believer? For the glory of God, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they, uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify, not you, but God on the day of salvation. Why did Jesus endure the final hours? John 12, Father, glorify your name. Why does God forgive sin? For his glory, Psalms 25 tells us. Everything we do is for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Herod was struck down because he didn't give glory to God in Acts 12. This is God's plan. Habakkuk 2, I think, shows a beautiful description of what God's plan, the mission of God on planet Earth is. This is what it says. Habakkuk 2, 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. That's what God's about. Revelation 21 gives this picture of heaven, streets of gold. You've got this beautiful picture. And then it says at the end of the day, the sun will not be needed in heaven because the light of the glory of God will be the sun, will be our light. 
This is why God does what he does. Now let me ask you the question. Is this the way you see life? Do you see life as revolving around God or does God revolve around you? And this has been my experience. That most people, when they open their Bible, they see God revolving around them. They see the Bible primarily about them, not about God. The Bible is about God. That's who it's about. It is for the glory of God. This is why you were created. It's why you exist. And listen, this is a good thing. If God was about any other thing, he would be an idolater. I mean, he would be loving something above himself. And listen, this is a loving thing on behalf of God to you. Because as he exalts himself, as he, as he holds himself up for you and I to see, he is holding up the source and satisfaction of joy and life. He's holding all that up for you. So this is a good thing and it's a loving thing. So, so God is all about the glory of God. So this is what this means for us. It means that Stonegate is about the glory of God. If this is what God is going to be about, this is what we're going to be about. So when we think Stonegate, we are not trying to build a platform for you and I to make a name. We are trying to build the name of God in this community, in this area. That's what we're about. So when we look backward at Stonegate over this last year, we need to be careful not to reach for the glory. We need to be careful not to tamper with that. It is not because of us that God has done these things. It's in spite of us. And so we need to make sure we see this correctly, that what God has done here is for his name's sake, and we get the privilege and opportunity to live under that and in that. So we need to be careful not to tamper with that. And listen, as we look forward, we need to make sure we prioritize the glory of God in this place. That we prioritize that, that our preferences do not push that out. As, okay, now listen, as soon as our preferences become central in this place, we are on our way to dying. This is why churches die, because God no longer is central. His priorities have been pressed and pushed to the peripheral edge of the church, while all of these preferences start to determine why we do things and what we're going to do. So we need to be committed as we look forward in this place to fighting for and protecting that this place is always going to be, always will be about the glory of God because that is what God has always been about and always will be about. So we start with extending the glory of God. Now the question becomes, what's the best way to do that? Like how do we want to see that lived out and played out in this area? The answer to that is through lives changed by the gospel. So let's take this next statement through lives changed. I, I, I don't want to apologize to this. Like I'm saying this unashamedly. We want to see your life wrecked for the glory of God. We want to see that. We want to see your heart radically reoriented around the things of God. That's what we want to see. I mean, this is what we're about. And here's why, because we feel like this is the primary way we can in turn display God to our area. This is the primary way. So we are not about size. And I think this is worth um, just spending a couple of minutes on because this is a virus that has infected the church in America. A place that glorifies God does not equal big. It doesn't. And so success for us does not equal size. You can be a large church and dishonor God. You can be a small church and honor God. Size is not the issue. 
That is not it. A changed heart is the issue. And I, like I say this in, in pure humility because it really breaks my heart for, for pastors who have bought into this. But I think most churches would be completely satisfied with a full building and a big budget regardless of if God is there and regardless of if their people are conforming to the image of Christ. It does not honor God to have a big group of people that don't look like Jesus. It honors God and glorifies God when people conform to the image of Christ. This is what God is doing. He's getting glory for himself, and he's primarily doing that from changing his people into the image of Jesus. That's the issue. So, so our success is never based on our width in this place. Our success is always going to be based on our depth. And listen, that doesn't mean that numbers are all bad. They have their place. But their place is not one, two, three, four, or ten. It's after that somewhere. Okay, so, so when we think success, we think the image of Christ. Now let me just put this verse in front of you. If you want to flip back a couple of chapters in Romans, the Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 is a, is a verse that most people um, have, have at least kind of seen on a coffee cup, that, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But I want you to see verse 29. This is what God is up to here. So, so he's, he's getting glory from this place, and this is how, by doing this. Look at what it says in verse 28, or 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And why does he do that? Why? Ultimately for the glory of God. Now why does he do that in you? Now look at what it, what, the, what it says here. He predestines us to be conformed to the image of his son. This is why God saved you. He, he didn't just save you so you could stay like you are. He saves you to radically realter everything about your life. Everything. So, so let me ask you this question. When you hear th- this, like, this question asked, what do you think? What does a changed life look like? I mean, what does a Christian look like? This is my fear for how most people answer that question. Well, okay, so that looks like a guy who has stopped cussing. I mean, at least not out loud, right? I mean, we've probably dropped the bottle to some degree. I mean, we've become a pretty good husband. We're pretty good parents. Um, I mean, we're a pretty good neighbor. We're a model citizen. We primarily vote Republican. I mean, this is our deal, right? Okay, now look at me. That is not a changed life. That is a moral life. There is a big difference between a changed life and a moral life. A changed life means your heart has been renovated. It means that your heart has been recalibrated and reoriented and established on something drastically different. A changed life is first internal, not external. I mean, that guy I just described would fit directly into the Pharisees 2,000 years ago. He would have been cheering, kill Jesus, right along with them, right? That is not what we're going after. I mean, some of those things can be the byproduct of an inner change, but we are after hearts, not external behavior. We want to see, and we are pleading with God that he would renovate and drastically reshape how we think, how we feel. Listen, a changed life looks like, ap- like appetite adjustment, that you've been given new taste buds, desires, wants for different things. This is what it means to be changed by the gospel, that you want different things. Not that you do different things, but that you want different things. Not that you don't sin, but that you hate sin. 
Not that you live under the commands of Jesus, but that you love Jesus. This is what we're going after here. We're not after your moral conformity. We are after God coming into your heart and drastically reshaping how you feel about life, everything. That's what we're after. This is what it means for a life to be conformed to the image of Christ. That your heart looks, feels, is shaped differently. New taste buds, new appetites. This is what we're after. That's what change means in this place. That we would be like David in Psalms 42 when he says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after God. And you know what's been one of the greatest joys this year? Is stories of that happening. It's been so humbling for me to see that. Because I know that is not because of you and it's not because of me. That that's because of God. This is what we pray for in this place. That God would renovate your heart, change your heart. That God would give you a new way of seeing. And you know, primarily, we pray that for you because we want that for your sake, for the sake of your family. But you know why we primarily pray that? Because we want to see God made much of in this place. And then last statement. Extending the glory of God. How do we do that? Through lives changed. How are lives changed? They're changed by and through the gospel. So, so this is how lives are changed. God changes people through the gospel. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Now, if you think about Ephesians, this is what has happened in, in the first... Um, well, okay, Ephesians is six chapters long, written to a church. In the first three chapters, this is Paul's emphasis. He defines what the gospel is. Now, I want you to think about this. That is to the church. He's defining the gospel. Spends half of the letter defining the gospel to the church. So, so this, is, this is our message here. I mean, this is what we're preaching because this is what Paul preached to the church. This, this is the way that we're, all these things happen, right? So, so in the gospel, God saves people. So through the gospel, God saves. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, here, here's what you've got happening. In Ephesians chapter 2, um, Paul lays out, this is your hopeless condition. That you, when you're born, you're born dead in the trespasses and sins. You're born following, not God, but following the enemy. You're born following the course of this world. This is how we all start out. And then verse 4, it says this, but God. Now, this is where you were, but God starts to act. Because of his great love and his grace, he acts on us. Even when we're dead in our trespasses, and verse 5 says, he makes us alive. And I want you to look at verse, verse 8 and 9. It's summarizing what he's just said in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. If you want to know why you're saved, it is because of the grace of God enabling faith in your heart. Faith is the response to the grace of God exploding in you. This is what faith is. So, so he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. And listen, faith. Now I want you to look at me. Here's what faith is. Because this is so um, confusing in our culture. I mean, people get this. Faith is trusting God. Okay, it's not agreeing with facts about God. It's not agreeing that God sent Jesus on the cross to die for sin. It's not agreement of those things. It is trusting God. It is throwing your life on those things, knowing that that's your only hope. 
That's, that, this is what saving faith is. It's trusting God. Okay, now take this one step further. Faith is also treasuring God. Trusting and treasuring. Not mental agreement. Trusting and treasuring in God. This is what faith is. I mean, think about that imagery of Matthew chapter 13, where a guy sells all that he has in his joy so he can buy the field, so he can have Jesus. That's a picture of what becoming a Christian looks like. It is willingly and joyfully forsaking everything so you can have the treasure. It's treasuring God. This is why, and, and think about the language of the Psalms. In Psalm 63, let me read Psalm 63:1 to you and, and think about the language of this. L- listen to what it says here. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, now think about that. If you came up to me after the service and said, uh, hey, I just want you to know my, my soul thirsts for you. I mean, my flesh is fainting for you. Right? I, that's awkward talk, right? I mean, that is in all ways, shape, that is awkward. This is how Paul or, or David, the psalmist, feels about God. This is what it means to treasure Jesus. That, that you would look at him and it would be the consuming passion of your life. Faith is trusting and treasuring in Jesus. That's what saves somebody. And listen, we are here for salvation. We are not here just to appease you. We are here to see our community wrecked by the gospel, saved by the gospel. So the gospel is how God saves people. It's also the way God God sanctifies people. It's the way he grows us in holiness. The gospel is the way that you make progress into the kingdom. The the gospel is the way that you defeat sin and that you live for Jesus. The gospel is the way you do this. Now look down at verse 12, 11 and 12 in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians, defining the gospel, written to the church. This is what Paul says to him. One command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. and, And this is the command. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... Remember, this is, this is the one command in, in Ephesians 1 through 3. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, this is the one command. Remember, and listen to what he tells them to remember, that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the people of God strangers to the covenants of promise, that all these promises that God gives us in the scriptures are not ours, that we're separated from those. Having no hope and without God. But look at the gospel. This is what he tells them to remember, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what we're to remember. This is what we're about in here. We do not have five messages. We have one message, and it applies to people outside the gospel and inside the gospel. Those redeemed by Christ and those not redeemed by Christ. We have one message. It's the one message that we all need to hear, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preach one message every week. It's just from a different place in the Bible. Because they're all saying the same thing. This is what you need. This is what I need. 
the gospel. So, so this is what we're about, extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel. So when you grab a piece of ministry here, you're not pulling in that direction while we pull in another direction. This is the one direction, one priority. Okay, so we'll end with, with these thoughts. Number one, this is the mission. And I just want to ask you a straightforward question. Is this your mission for this place? As soon as preferences take the place of priority, we're all in trouble. We're on the way out. And listen to me. Our greatest danger in this place, one of our greatest dangers, is your preferences and my preferences becoming central. It's one of our greatest dangers. Okay, so, so we'll just do a little test case. Like, I mean, how, how do you, I mean, wh- where do you rank in this? Are, are gospel priorities central or your preferences? Okay, now I, I love the fact that we're going to do two services here in a couple of weeks. Two services on September the 12th, 9 and 11 o'clock. Now, now here's the preference piece of this. Let's just walk through this together. Preference sounds like this. I kind of hate to see that. I mean, preference sounds like this. I kind of like knowing that I sit right here. I mean, they sit right there and they sit right there. I mean, we we get donuts and coffee at 1015 every morning and sit in our seats together, right? I mean, this is our routine. Okay, now listen to me. That's the heart that has preference central. Here's gospel priority. Last week, we had 300 people in the sanctuary, like in here, and and we had about 30 upstairs with our junior high kids. So when they're in here, that means we've got roughly 330. You know how many seats we can put in here? About 325. So gospel priority is, I mean, we've got this option. We put a sign out on the front door and say, come back in a few months. Maybe we'll have room then. Or gospel priority says we die to preference so the gospel can move. And listen, this is why I love this early on in our church's life. This is going to be one of hundreds in our future. This is a great opportunity for us to flex gospel muscles and nail our preferences to the cross where they can be crucified so the gospel can keep moving. So this is the mission. Is it yours? Is it yours? I mean, this has got to be our mission, not mine. It's got to be ours. It's got to be our thing in this place. So this is our mission. Here's the great news is it's a satisfying mission. This is what you were made for. You were not made to live in your preferences. You were made to live in God's priorities for you. And the more you link your life to that mission, the more satisfying your life is going to be. It's a satisfying mission. This is what God's created you for. So walk with us here. Go with us here. And we'll, this will be the last thought here. This mission is for you. I mean, it's, it's for you, it's for me, it's for us. This is for us in this. And so let me ask you this question. As a church, we have to be committed to, to always making great attempts for the glory of God. We cannot settle in. We can't coast. We can't kind of pat ourselves on the back and kind of applaud what, what's happening. We cannot do that. We, we can't go there. This is our thing as a corporate body. We've always got to be attempting great things for the glory of God. And this is what that means for you. That you personally, in your neighborhoods, in your home, at your workplace, have to have great attempts for the glory of God happening all the time. 
If not, that means preferences are ruling in your heart. When I was 22 years old, I came across Philippians 1.20. And it has forever changed just the way I feel about life. Philippians 1.20, Paul is, is basically praying that, that he would have courage. Now, let me ask you the question. If you need courage for something right now in life, what is it? Here's Paul's response to what he needs courage for. That Christ would be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. You know what I pray for some of our men in here? That you would have a big enough mission in front of you that you would need courage to do it. That you wouldn't be so bored with life because you're playing with preferences. But the gospel would be so rooted in you that you would need courage to move into these great attempts that God's laying before you. I pray that for our church, that we would always be placing ourselves in positions to where we need the power of God, where we need courage to go, right? May that be for us. Let's pray. So this, this is what we're about, extending the glory of God through lives changed by the gospel. So I think this brings in a great opportunity this morning for us to repent of some things. For us to repent of some things. And so if you have gotten some preferences placed above that. So men, let's just talk your families. If preference in your family, like maybe comfort, like maybe laziness, has crept in and replaced that gospel priority, We need to repent of that this morning. And we need to reestablish the gospel as a primary motivator and place in our life. And how about just in our church? Like, I think this is a great morning to be able to repent in this place where preferences, where the way you would like things to be done that are not priorities. I mean, they're not priorities. They are not gospel priorities. I think it gives us a great opportunity to repent of those things. I think this gives us a great opportunity this morning to be able just to to lay low before God and say, God, will you in your grace keep us centered on the glory of God? Will you help us not to reach for glory, but to reflect it? Not to grab for it, but to give it. God, will you help us in that? Will you kill these sinful tendencies in us that make us think that we have to be central? That our name needs to be built. And God, will you give us a vision in this place, in this church, in our community to see you made famous? God, we know we need great grace for that know that so we ask that you would give it I ask that you give it to dads across this room to moms across this room to our teenagers to our kids to our singles God that you would give that sort of grace to keep you central for the rest of our days it's in your great and glorious name that we pray why don't you stand with us as we sing